0: Irving and Harry are baseball fanatics. It's all they can talk about or think about. And sadly, Harry becomes sick, gets sicker, and it's clear that Harry's dying. Irving says to him, listen, Harry, I'm sorry. But the truth is, really, the only thing I want is after you pass away, if there's any possibility, come back, like in a dream or something, and let me know, is there baseball in heaven? Harry says, I promise, if I can, I will let you know. Sure enough, Harry dies. And a week later, he comes to Irving in a dream. He says, Irving, I have good news and I have bad news. what?" He says, the good news is there's baseball in heaven. And Irving goes, That's wonderful. What's the bad news? He says, You're pitching Thursday. <laughs> One of the things that I like about that joke is that it captures a reality that is true for some of us, which is some of us believe there's something after this life, but we still don't want to go there. If there is an afterlife, we'll find out when the time comes. And yet the truth is that I was struck this year by the reality that for all the Yisker sermons I have given in the course of my life, and I have given a lot of Yisker sermons, I never gave one that told people what Jews believe about the afterlife, which would seem to be a pretty important topic for a Yisker sermon. And not only that, But of all the fundamental questions of belief that Jews ask or that Jews have wrong impressions about, I would say the afterlife might be number one. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people confidently say, Judaism doesn't believe in an afterlife. That's not true. Not at all. But in order to understand this, we need to do a little spade work here. And I want to start off, before I talk about Jewish belief or afterlife or any of that, I want to start off by addressing those of you right now who are thinking, why would I bother with this? You die, you go into the ground, that's it. I know that. The great scientist J.B.S. Haldane once said, not only is the world queerer than we suppose, but it is queerer than we can suppose. And in fact, if you at all have any curiosity in modern physics, where there is talk of multiple universes, where things are going on sometimes the same as here, but with differences, Or that this is all actually a computer simulation and we're all playing out the computer code of a still higher intelligence, but you take that seriously because it comes from the mouth of a scientist, then all I can say is how could you not entertain the possibility that there is another world in which human beings exist beyond this one? in all those multiple universes that physicists posit, (laughs) Couldn't couldn't there be one where we're there? Or if we're not there now, where we get to eventually? So I at least want to open your mind to the possibility that there are things we do not know, and that the comment, I'm rational, therefore I don't believe it, is irrational. Because if you were rational, you would know that our minds, just like our eyes and our ears and our senses, are limited compared to the enormity of what is, and therefore, to say I know it isn't true is an irrational statement. Now I understand, of course, why someone would say that, because we've never been there. And not only that, but the before life, that is, before you were born, it didn't bother you at all, right? Nobody nobody here in the 14th century was saying, this is really upsetting that I haven't been born yet. Unless maybe you watched the beginning of Outlander, in which case it's a problem. But otherwise, we realize that existence is, as Nabokov put it, a brief crack of light between two darknesses. Yet once life has been brought into the world, you start to wonder. If the principle is that no energy is ever lost, it may be transformed, but it's not lost, that's a law of thermodynamics, then what happens to the energy that is me? Now I will tell you that Judaism has different theories. And you know them. Hametim, We say in the Amidah, uh, who resurrects the dead, which means physical bodily resurrection. You come back at whatever age, I don't know. It poses all sorts of problems. But that you come back as a physical being, which I grant you is somewhat improbable, hard to believe, Although, as the Talmud says, if God could create you from dust once, why couldn't God create you from dust twice, which is a reasonable question. Nonetheless, I'm going to leave resurrection alone for a minute, and I'm also going to leave alone reincarnation, which is another thing that doesn't exist in mainstream Judaism, but in mystical Judaism, reincarnation is also a theory and perhaps a theory for another time. But the idea that you have a non-physical part of yourself, which is really what's at the core of all of this, that idea is repeated again and again. What's the first prayer a Jew is supposed to say in the morning? I am grateful to you The Lord my God, who has returned my soul to me. As if in some sense, you're parted with it when you're in deep sleep, but it is returned to you. We say it in every morning service. God, the soul you have given me is pure. We, by the way, muck it up along the way, but it starts off as being pure. And that idea, that idea that there is something non-physical about human beings is a very powerful idea. Once we start to physicalize it, then we start to lose it. So as soon as I start to describe what heaven is like, it sounds ridiculous. Mark Twain in Letters from Earth says, people think they're going to lie on green fields and listen to harp music. He said, you actually wouldn't want to do that for five minutes while you're alive, so why you think that will make you happy doing it for the rest of eternity, I don't understand. But it just shows how unable we are to conceive of a world that isn't this one. After all, before you were born into this world, you could not have imagined this world. Who could have imagined buildings and tuna fish, and eyes, and colors, and all these things that we've never experienced. And remember that you learn things from experience that you cannot know by intellection, by reason. It's a famous experiment by a philosopher, Jackson. It's a thought experiment, but you can do it with me. He says, imagine we put Mary in a room. And Mary is the world's most brilliant scientist. And we teach her everything about vision. She understands it like soup to nuts. Nobody in the world knows more about vision, how it works, how it operates, than Mary does. Then we open the door and show her a tomato. She's never seen a color before. Has she learned something by the experience that she couldn't know by study? And the answer, of course, is yes. How many times have you said, oh, I knew this, but until I experienced it, I didn't realize what it was like? So can we really imagine another world without experiencing it? No. But is such an experience possible? Maybe. The Chafetz Chaim was perhaps the greatest rabbi of the 19th century. And he lived in a small town in Poland called Radun. But people knew about him all over the world because he was, his real name was Rabbi Israel Meir Kagan, but he was called the Chafetz Chaim because he wrote books especially about how one should speak or shouldn't speak. And it was from the psalm Miha Isha Chavetz who's the man that Chavetz means desires life? Netzur Lashon Chamera. He flees from bad speech. So he was known popularly as the Chavetz Once, a delegation of American Jews, 19th century, went to visit the famous Chavetz And they found him in a little study with a rickety desk and a few books. And they were amazed. And one of them said, where is all your stuff? And he said, where's yours? And they said, well, we're just passing through. And he said, me too. (laughs) That belief, the belief that in fact we were passing through and that there was something beyond this, that belief, by the way, is part of the reason you say the Kaddish. Why do you say the mourner's Kaddish? There are lots of reasons given, but one is to give the nishamah, the soul of the person who has died in Aliyah, to help them on their way after death. That's why it was so important to some people to have someone say Kaddish for them, because that's what helps their soul along the way. Now, you don't get helped along the way unless there's a way to go. So, in the Bible, there are a couple of hints, but by the time you get to the Talmud, call Israel yeshlem chelek ba'olam haba, all of Israel has a place in the world to come. And lest you think that the rabbis of the Talmud were narrow and chauvinistic, they also said in several different places, call tzadikei umot Olam, yeshlem chelek ba'olam haba, all the righteous of all the nations have a place in the world to come. You don't have to be Jewish to have a place in the world to come. Jews should be proud of that. But they assumed there was another place, but they were not so foolish as to say, and by the way, the place has lawns and lovely homes. I confess to you, <laughs> this is very typical of the rabbis. You should forgive them. The one, one of the things that they do constantly describe heaven as is yeshiva shel ma'ala, which is basically the religious school on high. And as my Talmud teacher once remarked, for some that will be heaven and for some that will be hell. But the idea that you could study with God was for them ultimately paradise, but you're allowed to have variations of that. You don't have to accept that one. But this idea that it was possible to be more than we are that we don't entirely disappear, but that we transform in one way or another. This is really important in the Jewish tradition. Can you imagine having a God that loves you and abandons you the day you die? In fact, some Midrashim, some Rabbinic legends talk about the idea that there's a storehouse of souls. And as new people come into the world, they draw from the storehouse of souls. And that we pass on. And that we discover a reality far beyond anything we could imagine. Last night, those of you who were here know that I spoke about my father losing his father. I know that this might surprise you, but my father and I, though both rabbis, and I have another brother who is a rabbi, and one who is a scientist, and one who is an ethicist, we didn't that often have strictly religious discussions, but occasionally we did and once i remember a few years before he died i was walking with him along the schuylkill river in philadelphia where i grew up and where he lived and i said you know Dad, i've never asked you this before i don't think but what do you think happens after you die by the way this is a great question to ask people and if you have people in your life that you haven't asked ask them. And I'll tell you what he told me. He said, I don't believe that human beings disappear. And I thought, that's exactly what I think. I don't know what happens to us, but I don't believe we disappear. Can you look in the eyes of someone you love and think, that's all synapse, no soul? Can you explore yourself and think, ah, this is just a physical thing. There's nothing intangible in me. Even though we live in a world of intangibles, imagination is intangible, dreams are intangible, concepts are intangible, mathematics is intangible, there is nowhere in the world where 2 plus 2 equals 4 exists as a sort of abstract theorem. It's intangible, but it's real. So if we live so much in the intangibles, can't there be something in us that is intangible? Maurice Lamb, in his book on death and dying, tells the following parable. He says, imagine twins in a womb. One of them, in the discussion that they're having back in the womb, says, you know, this is it. There's no world outside this. We've never seen another world. We've never experienced another world. This is all we got. But his brother says, no, I think there's more. I think there's something out there. Now, he says, imagine that the one who believes is born back in the womb, his brother is mourning a death. Out in the world, we were celebrating a birth. That, he said, is what it's like in this world and the next world. Now, I've known that parable for many years, told it before. But this year, it took on a special poignancy by something else that I learned, that you just saw. My whole life, I always assumed that when we fall korim in front of the Ark, when the Cantor and I, you saw, went all the way down, put our faces to the ground in front of the Ark, I always felt that and experienced that as a moment of humility and creatureliness before the kadosh baruchu, before God. But this year, I read the interpretation of the late chief rabbi of England, Emmanuel Jacobovitz. He said, when you fall in front of the ark, it's a fetal position. You're about to be reborn. So there it is. Yisker is a time when we hope for and pray for rebirth. Do we know? We cannot know, not the way we know empirical things. But I, for one, don't believe that human beings, human striving, human genius, human heartache, human hopes, I don't believe they all dissolve in a cloud of dust. I don't believe that the people whom I loved disappear. Where they are, how they are, I do not know, but that they are, that they are, I believe.